God's future judgment is more terrifying than the present judgment of the world. Let me say that again. God's future judgment is more terrifying than the present judgment of the world. Every Christian here, I, I hope, believes that's true. So let's, let's put that to the test. This will be fun. Maybe. <laughs> let's, let's play a little would you rather. And I'm doing this to kind of make a bit of a point. I, I hope not to goad you here. So would you rather. Would you rather right now be a, a Christian in North Korea or maybe the underground church in Ukraine? I don't know. Something like that. Or would you rather not be a Christian and live in the wealthiest and safest city in America? What would you rather do? Let me cut you some slack. I don't mean to force you to think that if you're not involved in foreign missions, you're blowing it. Um, I just asked you that to choose between those two fairly extreme options because it forces your mind to think about two kinds of judgment. For the Christian, in option number one, the judgment of God is not on them, but the judgment of the world, especially in a restrictive place like, say, North Korea, would be both painfully clear and impossible to ignore. If you were a functional Christian there, word would spread fast and life would get hard. God's judgment in option number two, though it would be hanging over the rich and comfortable non-Christian, well, that might look almost abstract, wouldn't it? What judgment? And in, even if the idea of God's judgment were to come to mind on occasion, on a bad night, maybe, hey, that's, that's down the road. Life is, is good now, but might get worse, but that's kind of out of mind. Two kinds of judgment. I say that to say this. Sometimes the most merciful thing that God can do is to bring judgment to mind and give us just a taste here on earth so that we can manage to swallow it and thus give ourselves to him completely before it's too late and we get the real thing. We're only 11 verses into the book of Habakkuk and it's clear that the nation of Israel deserves a lot more than just a taste of God's judgment. I mean, prophets sent from God have warned them for years, for decades, for generations to run away from false gods and run toward the real God, to no avail. One of those prophets, Habakkuk himself, in fact, has been so offended by the sin of Israel that in these first 11 verses we've looked at so far, he's lodged a protest and he's got more. 
And in short, here's how it started. God, Israel is evil. What are you going to do about it? And God's response, where we left off last week, was essentially this. I'm going to send Babylon to conquer you. And today's text is Habakkuk's second protest, which is essentially this. You're going to do what? <laughs> Judgment? From you? And, and from, from Babylon? It seems the solution that God is offering is worse than the problem. Habakkuk is going to learn a very hard truth today. So let's see what we can learn from him as he makes his second protest, which I'm going to sum up like this before we read. God, we shouldn't die. I'll first read just verse 12 as Habakkuk kind of reels from the news God has just given him. Here it is. Habakkuk says this to God. Are you not from everlasting? O Lord, my God, my Holy One, we shall not die. O Lord, you've ordained them as a judgment and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. So this is Habakkuk's opening statement to God. You shouldn't kill us. Now he uses in this one short verse some flattering but somewhat true language. God, you've you've been here since the beginning from everlasting and you're Lord, you're holy, you're good. Habakkuk is looking back as an Israelite through history and he's seeing God as an active, as a saving God who spared Adam and Eve, though they sinned and spared Noah's line instead of destroying the earth. And this is Israel's favorite story to tell. God spared Israel from the evil nation of Egypt. And he gave them victory again and again throughout history as they held on to the promised land. But now it looks like they're going to lose it. So he says, we shall not die. Remember, this is a protest. God, you could almost imagine Habakkuk saying this. God, this isn't like you. You save your people. You don't kill them, right? Now, to be fair, Habakkuk was probably not expecting death to be the prognosis when he walked into the doctor's office, so to speak, that day. But remember your biblical history. Let's think about those stories that Israel's held on to, and let's look at them from a broader perspective. Israel is not a confused patient who has just been handed a surprising and terrible x-ray. This exchange is more like a lifelong alcoholic having the audacity to be surprised when he is told that his liver has failed. What did you expect? (laughs) Because when God did deliver... Israel from Egypt, what happened? They turned to false gods instead of the real one. And when God gave them the promised land, what did they do? 
again and again, they turned to false gods. And now the real one, the only one that matters, is giving them what they want. God's judgment is terrifying. And this isn't even a half of it. He's just handing them over to what they've essentially been asking for with their hearts. But Habakkuk does not kneel in response to this realization. His next words show that he's more offended by God's methods than his nation's sin. Let me read verses 13 through 16. As Habakkuk continues, You, God, who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet. So he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them, he lives in luxury and his food is rich. So, as Babylon is kind of off to the side here historically and sharpening their swords for the kill, the next part of Habakkuk's protest is summed up like this. You shouldn't give evil the victory. Now, it kind of makes sense. I mean, God who supposedly rejects evil seems to be allowing it to grow stronger by his judgment. Habakkuk even puts it this way in verse 13. God, why are you idle? Why does God remain silent while wicked Babylon, according to Habakkuk, swallows up the man more righteous. So I guess Habakkuk is assigning the righteous role to Israel. I think because of that, and because of what we know about history, I think we can think that Habakkuk's not seeing clearly here. But he doubles down, and now he shifts the blame towards God even further. Verse 14, You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. I mean, you could argue here that what Habakkuk is doing is accusing God of being an absentee landlord, abandoning faithful, righteous Israel. Or at least, well, Israel's kind of righteous. Can't you cut us some slack? But instead, what's happening is God seems to be elevating Babylon. In verse 15, specifically the king. That's what the pronoun he means there. We're not talking about God in the following verses. We're now shifting the focus to the Babylonian king. And you, you'll see why as, as you, you, look, you look at this, uh, the state that Israel's in. What Babylon's going to do, and it certainly looks the case is this king is going to reel in Israel in a net and consume them. This evil, 
Very wealthy, very arrogant, devil-worshipping king. So in short, according to, Babel, according to Habakkuk, God is not only out of character and passive. In some ways, Habakkuk's almost assigning God to the role of the villain. Because the evil people sure seem to be winning, and God's not doing anything while the good guys are losing. Habakkuk, I think, has a fairly distorted view of God. And this is why he has such a conclusion in, one, in chapter 1, verse 17, through 2, 1, the last two verses of his protest. Let me read that. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me, that's God now, and what I will answer concerning my complaint. So Habakkuk concludes, God, is this how it ends? Will we be crushed forever by Babylon? And if they fall, who's next? Who's next to conquer us? Because we are alone. And with that, Habakkuk looks to God for an answer. And don't many of us. Now, if you were Habakkuk, what might you hope to hear from God at this point? Perhaps you would hope that he would say, You're right. I have been too hard on you. I mean, is God fair to judge sinners? Well, I think so, because Habakkuk so far has been right about one thing. God is holy. If you know what holy means, it literally means set apart. And in God's case, that means cannot dwell with sin. He can't. If he did, he would not be holy. And so his judgment on everyone would be completely deserved. Right. Because of that, I think, and I think the text will follow this thread... I think Babylon and Israel have a lot more in common than they think. Certainly, they have more in common than Habakkuk thinks. But, while that sounds like bad news, it's not necessarily over as God responds. God's response to Israel is this. I'll sum it up. It gets worse, however... So as I read the last portion of our text, see if you can find what the however might be referring to. Here it is. Here's God's response. Write the vision. Make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. 
It will not lie. If a team's slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not right within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol, or the grave. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. So God says two things in his response. The first thing he says is, this is your hope, the faithful will survive. Let me uh, skip ahead to verse 4 as I unpack that. In the midst of all this pain, we see the way out of judgment. That's the however. The righteous shall live by his faith. What does this mean? Especially to an Old Testament audience. Well, Habakkuk just spent a lot of time and energy calling himself and Israel righteous, or at least more righteous than Babylon. God's response is to shift the argument. His response is that what makes somebody righteous is where they put their faith. And we get two case studies. In the first half of verse 4, God shows us the bad case. The person who is puffed up. His faith is in himself. Now I know what you're thinking. That sounds like Babylon. And you're right. Because God actually said this in verses 10 and 11 of last week's sermon. I'll read it. At kings, they scoff. And at rulers, they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and they take it. They sweep by like the wind and go on guilty men, whose own might is their God. Does that sound like somebody a little full of themselves? Yeah. So in 2.4, God says, that kind of faith leads to death. So in other words, that phrase that you might hear when you're walking around, keep the faith, that's not enough. Faith in what? So what's the right kind of faith? By contrast, it is faith not in people, but in God. Bear with me as I kind of explain this from the text. We see evidence of this in chapter 2, verse uh, 2, where God kind of circles us back and says, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. Here's what that means. The only vision found in this book, so this has to be what God's referring to, is in the first verse of the first chapter. The oracle 
or vision that Habakkuk the prophet saw. So what God is saying to Habakkuk here in chapter 2 is this. Habakkuk, make it plain to people what I am telling you. Which I hope I'm doing now. And the desired reaction of the people, the people who have the right faith, is right there. That those who read it, the things I'm telling you, will run. Will run. Run from what? Well, run from faith in anything other than God. That they will turn away from the faith that the nations have in their own false gods. And that they would turn towards and put their hope in the only God who matters. They need that the most. What's God doing here in his response? I think what he's doing is he's shifting Habakkuk's focus from the horizontal to the vertical. He's shifting Habakkuk's focus away from Babylon because their judgment is not the real issue at hand. Verse 3 explains it a little bit. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Habakkuk wants judgment. Judgment is coming. And Babylon is not the real deal. In other words... All this time, God's people have been sweating Babylon, and it's not Babylon they should be worried about. It's the judgment of God. This is who God is. This is a thread throughout the Bible. I mean, from Genesis, not just here, but all the way to Revelation, we read account after account of people from all nations including the good guys who trust themselves instead of God. And they're running the wrong way because their faith is in the wrong place. It's in themselves. The evidence is everywhere. And so God concludes his response by showing Habakkuk, and I think showing us, just how deceitful and deadly misplaced faith really is. The proud are dead already, is how I'd sum that up. Because in verse 5, the, the, the response concludes and God's focus shifts to the present state of this Babylonian king with a bit of a warning. And it starts like this. Wine is a traitor. And if you grew up Baptist, you're like, I get it. <laughs> I don't think that's what it means. <laughs> Wine elsewhere is, of course, a generalized way of saying 
riches, comfort, wealth. This is a contrast. Remember what Habakkuk said in his original um, complaint? That this Babylonian king is literally eating them and becoming luxuriously wealthy off of them. So what God's saying here is the proud and godless man or the proud and godless nation might currently look full of life, but according to verse 5, he is like death. He will never really be satisfied here with his faith in himself. And then, then he gets God's judgment. In short, not only do the proud not win in the end, Habakkuk, they're not really winning now. Don't be fooled. So, is Habakkuk winning? What do you think? Where is his faith at this point? He who calls himself righteous by comparing himself to Babylon. I think Habakkuk is more puffed up than he realizes. You might even say he's in danger of God's judgment as well. Here's the lesson we find in God's hard response. Don't pretend to be righteous by comparing yourself to Babylon or to other Israelites. God's standard is what matters. And his judgment is what matters. His coming judgment is more terrifying than the present judgment of the world. And so, faith is not to be found in the proud evil around you or the proud evil inside of you. You put your faith in who God is. Don't be fooled. Well, sadly, Israel was fooled. For the next 500 years, they were passed around from net to net by king after king until they were stuck in a small corner of the Roman Empire. And then, along comes Jesus, who lived the only righteous life ever. And the world hated him for that. Even God's own people. They killed him because they just wanted their nation back. The good news, even in spite of that, is that Jesus took that judgment and he was raised up and he said to those who put their faith in him, your faith has made you well. 
He made them righteous so that they would not and could not receive God's judgment. And he said, though the world would hate them too, those who put their faith in him, he promised he would come back to judge those with misplaced faith. How do we apply this? Well, first and perhaps obviously to those of you who have not yet put your faith in Jesus Christ, don't be fooled. If your faith is in yourself, the fact that you think you're a little better than your neighbor, or the good somehow outweighs the bad, or your faith is in the little gods that you've made, those won't satisfy you. Even if you fool yourself, you won't fool God. And then you'll face his judgment. You won't believe how many people I've met that are my age, especially those who are older, and they look back on their lives and are unsatisfied and they're full of regret. And the worst part is their necks are stiff, not just their physical necks, (laughs) but they just can't bear to humble themselves. Jesus offers you the only way out. Put your faith in him alone. How does the Christian apply this? Well, also, don't be fooled. Because if Habakkuk can be fooled, you can be fooled. I'd like us to consider two kind of bigger ways that can happen. First, don't measure your righteousness by Babylonian standards or Israelite standards. For example, say you're married. (laughs) If you are, do you measure the righteousness of your marriage against the marriage of your neighbor? That's trouble. If the marriage you're comparing yours to, for example, is to unbelievers who might, in their case, have a lot of obvious problems, here's what that will do to you. First, you'll find yourself complacent towards improving your own marriage because you think you're good enough. And second, you will not have a desire to help your neighbor. Because if you do, they're not the bad guy anymore. Now, if that's your mindset, they're Babylon. And if they're Babylon, what does that make you? Israel? How'd that work out for Israel? 
Nobody wins. And the same is true, I'll even argue, if you measure your marriage to another Christian marriage. First off, you don't live with them, so you might not know them as well as you think. Second, that's four sinners arguing over who sins the least. Who wins? Nobody. Instead, may I ask you, Christians, measure your marriage by Jesus' standard. Go to Ephesians 5 and see what that does. Write that down and just read it with your spouse. Say, how are we doing? Because Jesus is holy. And he calls his people to be holy. And married couples can sin as much as married people. Uh, married, and uh, I'll say it this way. Married couples can sin as much as single people. You might even argue they can sin twice as much because the math. <laughs> so instead do this. As you get closer, because you will, and you see more sin, which you will, especially if you have kids, don't put your faith in yourself. Don't just lower the bar and get by. Instead, confess your sins and shift your faith to where it counts. Shift it to God who not only sets the standard but gives you grace, gives you hope. When that happens, you will grow at least more eager to extend mercy instead of judgment. I don't know if you've ever judged in a hurtful way your spouse, I'm sure you did at least once today. <laughs> or if you judge your kids harshly, at least once you did. Maybe before church started. <laughs> Maybe since I started. That feels good for a moment, doesn't it? To have that high ground. But soon you realize you don't really have that high ground morally, do you? Not compared to God. And I know from experience that that judgment, that leaves a mark. Let me give you one more example of measuring the righteousness incorrectly. In your career or in your work, whether it's a school or a job or Lord help you both. Be careful not to measure your righteousness by worldly standards. So here's how that same lesson applies to your career or your school. Whether you work in a secular or a Christian environment, whatever that means, <laughs> um, it's easy to do things over time like fudge the numbers or clock out early, or gossip, or cheat on tests, or reports 
simply because that's what people do around here. So easy to do that, to just kind of fall into the wrong crowd and to just get caught up. The Apostle Peter, the rock of the church, did that, and he was rightfully rebuked by Paul. But here's the thing. If you get fooled, here's how it works in your mind. As long as I do it a little less than the guy next to me, I'm okay. Or, as long as I just try to be covert. Or as long as I just make up for it with good works. I sin against God, I'll just put a little extra in the plate. And I'll be okay. And when you do that, and when I do that, what happens? We will think we are better than them. But if you measure your righteousness by God's standard, you will find yourself in a unique position. I might add especially, if you're in a secular environment, to really stand out. Here's how. Not by faking self-righteousness, but leading in weakness and giving God the glory. You want to make a difference? We're always like, oh, I know how I'll make a difference. I'll just make it look like my kids are awesome. You really want to give God's glory? Ask somebody for forgiveness when you sin against them. Even if they're not a Christian. I might even add, especially. Because people don't do that. I've been on the internet. I know. When you do that, you stand out. And then you stand out by taking steps of growth. Now, Whenever you do that, whenever you dare to admit weakness and you depend on God with a heart of faith in Him, some people will think you are weak and you are foolish and you are stupid because you do not look strong by their messed up standards. So that's your second application. Don't be fooled by the strength of the proud. So when they say things like, you think you're better than me. When you're just trying to please God. Or if they get rich or they get ahead, they climb the ladder through sinful means and then they turn around and say, you lack hustle. Don't think you're missing out just because Babylon's looking strong. Because God has judgment For anyone who lacks faith in him. That's the judgment to be concerned about. And if you're in Christ, that judgment doesn't apply to you. So don't worry about their judgment. Don't fear them. The Apostle Paul, who looked like he had it all, by the way, until he became a Christian. He put it this way in Romans 1. He said... For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. 
to the Jew first and also the Greek. Israel, Babylon, anybody. Anybody can join this kingdom. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul knew what he was standing on. So he wasn't fooled by the apparent strength of people who had misplaced faith. Stand on that. Let me close with a litany of people from the Bible who did just that. Who lived by faith. Who lived lives, some of them you'd like to live and some of them you probably wouldn't. And I'm going to close with this so that you are reminded that if you are in Christ, you do not walk in faith alone. This is from Hebrews 11. Through faith, God's people conquered kingdoms and enforced justice and obtained promises, stopped the mouth of lions quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in the skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Friends, let us not be afraid of how our life turns out at the hands of the world. Because that's not the end. As the author of Hebrew wrote just prior to this, and I opened with these words, yet a little while and the coming one will come and will not delay. Don't get tired of waiting. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. So may we likewise not shrink back. And may Jesus find us faithful when he certainly returns. Let's pray. Dear God, um, it is something when we look at the world's judgment It's so vivid. It hurts. When people call us stupid, when we look dumb and our churches look small and our missionaries look underfunded and we just think, are we doing it right? Lord, help us to not take our cues from the world. May we take our cues from your word. May we love it. May we, like David, a man after your own heart, lose sleep thinking about your law. 
May we meditate on it day and night. Be like the psalmist David writes, like a tree planted by water who does not wither. Lord, that's your promise to those who have faith in you. May that be true of us. Amen.